Hello, welcome to the Positive Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Ian T.D. Thompson. The Positive Energy Podcast is the official podcast of the University of Ottawa's Positive Energy Initiative. The initiative seeks to strengthen public confidence in Canadian energy policy, regulation, and decision-making through evidence-based research and analysis, engagement, and recommendations for action. Today on the program, we are continuing our discussion with Positive Energy faculty affiliate, Professor Dwayne Bratt of Mount Royal University on Alberta's Climate Leadership Plan. Please visit the Positive Energy Podcast website to listen to part one of this discussion. I hope you enjoy. So we've been talking a little bit about the role of the federal government in all of this and how we have this newly elected Trudeau government coming in. And while this was a provincial plan to address the unique needs of Alberta's energy and economic makeup, it also had wider implications at the federal level. How did the CLP affect the federal government with its own national environmental strategy? Oh, um, I, I think a lot. Uh, and, and that's one of the legacies of this policy is that while the Kenny government quickly removed the carbon tax, the federal backstop is going to kick in January 1st, 2020. And so, in effect, you're going to only have a couple months when Albertans haven't been paying a, uh, a carbon tax. I think there's a clear connection between the Alberta plan and the national plan, a clear influence that Notley had on Trudeau. Now, Trudeau would have brought in some sort of climate plan. He campaigned on it, but would it have looked differently? So, for example, on a federal carbon tax, I don't think he would have done that or made that announcement if the four largest provinces, Ontario, Quebec, BC, and Alberta, didn't already have some sort of program in place. In addition, because Trudeau recognizes the legacy of his father, Pierre Trudeau, in the province of Alberta, and the legacy of the National Energy Program in this province, he would not have brought in, I think, a federal tax on carbon if Alberta hadn't moved first. There would have been something else. There would have been something different. But the economy-wide carbon tax, I think, could only have happened because Notley moved first. And so I think there is, there is a legacy there. And, that's, and the irony of the, of the election results uh, this past fall with Trudeau winning re-election and reimposing uh, the carbon tax in Alberta, I think it shows the strength and the, the, the resilience of Notley's climate leadership plan. On top of all of this is the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is incredibly important because, as you mentioned, the CLP, part of the reason it was there was to achieve that social license to yes. pursue expansion of uh, oil and gas to global markets. How has that grand bargain changed over time? Does that compromise still exist? I think that compromise still exists. I think Trudeau ran on that in, in 2019 on the grand bargain of a climate plan in exchange for some pipelines, not all pipelines. And he's been criticized on both sides. Any time he travels through the prairies, he's attacked for um, not doing enough for the oil and gas sector, despite not only approving Trans Mountain Pipeline, not only redoing consultations, spill mitigation after it got blocked in the courts, but when Kinder Morgan gets cold feet, they actually buy the pipeline. 
That's all ignored by critics uh, from the oil and gas side, and they just pound on him by saying, you've landlocked Alberta. Likewise, when he travels elsewhere, he's got environmental groups saying, you have no credibility on climate because you bought a pipeline. And so it's a classic liberal position to try to be in the middle, uh, to try to say, yes, we are going to address climate, and here are the steps we're going to do it, but we're not going to destroy the economy in the process, and therefore we're going to support market access because in the in transition period, whether that's you know 15 years, 25 years, 50 years, there is a demand for these products, and we have to get it to market. So I think that grand bargain that Trudeau outlined is still there. I think the failure of that grand bargain, at least on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, meant that his ally, Rachel Notley, was defeated. The failure of that grand bargain, I think, also explains why he has no seats right now between Winnipeg and and Vancouver. But I think the bargain still exists. And while there is huge opposition between the Kenny and the Moe governments in Saskatchewan and Alberta and Trudeau, the public here overwhelmingly voted conservative and 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 the liberal vote just collapses to historic lows but trans mountain is something that all three sides share <laughs> you know if they can get trans mountain built and when i mentioned the kenny election campaign in the spring a lot of it was around getting rid of the carbon tax, but it was also pipelines. I mean, their slogan was jobs, economy, pipelines. Pipelines had never been a big political issue in this province. It was just, it was something that occurred. And yet by 2019, pipelines had become very important, and and not just economically, but symbolically. Uh, The Trans Mountain Pipeline is of an importance way beyond its economic merits. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you mentioned A, the pipeline, and B, the fact the outcome of the 2019 federal election, the fact that the governing liberals have no seats in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And there have been attempts, most notably several key political appointments, uh, have been appointed to tackle this issue. You have all-stars like Christopher Freeland, Jim Carr in Winnipeg, Seamus O'Regan as the natural resources minister. Knowing what we know about the climate leadership plan, and its impact on federal climate policy, how might the federal government and Alberta reach greater consensus on climate issues moving forward? Does it exist with the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Well, I think the federal carbon tax is still going to kick itself in. And I I don't know, despite Kenny and Moe requesting that it be dropped, the fact that they're still continuing an appeal to the Supreme Court to rule it unconstitutional. Trudeau has no wiggle room here. He cannot budge on this. I mean, he he wins an election. Andrew Scheer loses an election, I think, in, in large part to the issue of climate change. And so if you win an election, you're not about to adopt the policy that cost your opponent the election. And so we'll, we'll see what the courts say. I think the courts are going to rule, as they did in Saskatchewan and Ontario, in favor of the federal government, but, but we, we will see. So I think that's still going to be a bone of contention. But the high emitter tax is a very interesting one. So I mentioned the high emitter tax in the oil sands that Ed Stelmach brought in and how weak it was. And then Notley comes in and, and Shannon Phillips, her environment minister, quickly increases it, uh, the seizure, what was called the seizure system. And then the carbon, the overall carbon tax replaces it. Jason Kenney repeals the carbon tax, but 
about a month ago, he reintroduces a new high emitter tax called TIER. And not only did he campaign on this, it was in the UCP election platform, he increases it to $30 a ton. This is a much more significant program than, than Ed Stelmack had. And it is designed to prevent the federal backstop from kicking in on the oil sands. It's as close as I think you're going to get, and I think an act of good faith from the Trudeau government would to recognize the equivalency of this. If they pick on you know, this or that little thing and say, no, it's not quite equal, they're gearing up for another fight. The fact that Kenny brought in a policy as stringent as he did, which was a surprise to many observers, including environmentalists, I think that's a sign of cooperation. And and if the Trudeau government accepts it as such, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, well, you've got to increase it to $50 a ton, you know, in, in two years' time, uh, save that for later. Congratulate them, recognize it as, as an equivalence, and I think that would check a very important climate cooperation box. Mm -hmm. I think it is quite interesting that you do have the Kenny government, which campaigned quite heavily on the removal of the carbon tax, bringing in regulations that ultimately are a carbon tax, albeit one that's more narrowed and targeted. But it is still quite interesting that it's still a carbon yeah. tax. Mm -hmm. And but the difference is it's focused on oil sands companies not across the general public. And so in Kenny's words, you're not being penalized for driving to work or heating your home. And people like taxing oil companies. <laughs> they just don't want to pay it. Uh, I think it contradicts the idea that the polluter pays because in a sense, we're all polluters when it comes to carbon emissions. But this is a much more sellable. And I think it also reflects that the big companies that operate in the oil sands the ones that were on stage with Notley still believe that climate change action is important. These are companies that operate around the world, realize the world is changing, realize that they have to act. And so the Shells and the Suncors and the CNRLs are taking leadership there. The smaller companies are the ones that are most opposed, but they typically don't operate in the oil sands or they're going to be taxed at such a low level that they really haven't complained too much. So it, it shows the split in the, in the oil sector. And basically, the groups that want action on climate change are the ones that are now paying for it. Mm -hmm. I just have a few more questions I'd like to kind of touch on. One is actually just about the report itself. Yeah. This report... You did your own independent research, but on top of that, you also interviewed several elite energy experts on the climate leadership plan. Can you describe or mention who was interviewed for this report and how did their stories contribute to this case study? Yeah, so I ended up doing over, over a dozen interviews and I separated them into architects. In other words, those who helped design the climate leadership plan, the participants, who was around the table, who went to the technical briefings, and, and finally, close observers. And I didn't get as many interviews as I hoped. There's still some people I'm, I'm holding out for. I've had a back and forth, for example, with, with Shannon Phillips, the NDP environment minister. We've yet to connect. Similarly, people within the current UCP Department of Energy, I'm still waiting on. But of those that I did interview, 
I, I spoke to Andrew Leach, for example, who who chaired the, the Leach panel, and so as and obviously he, not only a, a keen observer of what's transpired since, but was the archi- one of the architects of the of the plan. I talked to you know Ed Whittingham from the Pemberley Institute who was at those dinners with the uh, energy people, who was on stage on November 22nd, 2015, and was pillarized by Jason Kenney and the UCP. In fact, he was singled out in their party platform to be fired from the uh, Alberta Energy Regulator. So, you know, I spoke to Ed Whittingham. Uh, I spoke to Dave Collier, who's the former CEO of CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. I talked to Alan Fogwell, the Canadian Energy Research Institute. So I talked to industry people. I talked to environmental people. Um, I talked to you know one of the architects and Andrew Leach. I talked to some key observers, such as Max Fawcett, who worked for the Climate Change Office on messaging, and remains uh, in political communications. I talked to Janet Brown, who did polling around the ad campaign that the NDP introduced around climate change. So they all gave me different perspectives, different vantage points of the same policy. And I think that's important, that you needed people not just designing it or at the table, but observing. And and each of those come in with different perspectives. The difference between CAP's perspective and the Pemmett Institute is, is very different. But several things started to emerge, and early on, I started to discover just what a critical role that former Premier Jim Prentice played, and the realization that a Prentice government post-2015, had he won the election, would have introduced some sort of climate plan. I had access to a a book that Prentice wrote just before his death, where he outlines the importance of coal phase-outs and carbon taxes. How that would look, we simply don't know. But when I started to hear this, I then rang up an old colleague of mine, J.S. Rio, and J.S. was very close to to Jim Prentice. uh, He'd been his chief of staff in the Department of Industry. He had worked on the leadership campaign that won Jim Prentice, the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party, and he shared with me the leadership platform that Jim Prentice ran on, and there was an awful lot on climate policy in there that we've simply forgotten. And so I think that was a major contribution that the interviewers gave was uh, the contribution of, of Jim Prentice, which has been lost, I think, in this story. That's quite interesting, considering where we are right now. As we enter 2020, you have several provincial conservative governments that are being quite opposed to most actions or most large actions towards climate policy and implementing climate policy. I just want to like conclude with just some general ideas about the climate leadership plan. Obviously, this plan is still fairly recent when you think about yeah. it. You know, it, it, it's still November 2015 when the actual plan came into effect. And news is still developing about where elements of the plan will ultimately reside uh, or ultimately uh, come out over time. Overall, though, if we're to take a snapshot right now, what will the legacy of Alberta's climate leadership plan be? How will it be remembered? So, and a couple other things, it's also been tested in two elections. It's been tested provincially in April of 2019 and was tested federally in October of 2019. I those are important messages as well. I will say the final report that I came up with looks very different than what I envisioned when I first pitched the idea. 
I originally pitched the idea almost as a tragedy, you know, that here you have this government coming in, the Notley government, brand new ideas, this huge rollout of of policy package, and for a variety of reasons, some because of the government, some in external events that could not have been foreseen, the thing just gets wiped out within a couple of years. But as I started to do my interviews and started to look at events and started to do a timeline, I realized that that was not the case. And in fact, I think there is a a stronger legacy for the Climate Leadership Plan than is at first blush. The first is provincially. If you look at the provincial legacy, many of the prongs of the Climate Leadership Plan are still in place. The coal phase-out is still happening. Uh, Existing coal plants are retrofitting to natural gas or they're simply shutting themselves down. So that is occurring. The emissions cap on oil sands is still in place. There's still a plan to deal with methane reduction. The only thing that was pulled out by the provincial government was the carbon tax, but that was the most important piece. But the federal carbon tax is about to kick itself in. Do I think the federal carbon tax is as good as the provincial one? No, because the federal one gives 90% back in rebates to individuals. The provincial one gave about 40% in rebates, but used the rest for green energy, whether that was LRTs in Calgary and Edmonton or solar panels on municipal buildings in small towns and curling rinks across the province. I think the provincial plan was better, but the fact that there still is some sort of carbon tax, I think, shows the legacy of the CLP. The fact that Jason Kenney brought in a fairly stringent high emitter tax, I think, is a legacy of Notley's climate leadership plan. And nationally, the Trudeau government, despite being surrounded by very activist conservative premiers who are opposing many of his policies, sometimes in court, wins an election on these issues and is able to continue them. Had Andrew Scheer won, even if he didn't win on climate, uh, even if he won on you know the SNC or the blackface scandal or whatever other issue, he still would have tried to get rid of much of the pan-Canadian framework. That was not the case. And the fact that the Conservatives lost and there is realization that they need to come up with a real climate plan, I think is, is a further legacy of, of Notley. So it's a much more different story in its conclusion than it was when I originally wrote it, or originally decided to write it. Yeah, that's interesting that on its surface level, or on the initial kind of glance at the climate leadership plan, you see it as a tragedy. But to see the ideas, several of them quite explicitly continue on, even under a quite different provincial government. Yeah, and the challenge, though, to try to get decision makers to take similar type of action is, uh, and I compare it to the GST. So Brian Mulroney introduces the GST. He gets pillared for the GST. It contributes to the absolute collapse and defeat of the government in 1993. And yet subsequent governments praise (laughs) Mulroney for introducing the GST, and he becomes seen as as an elder statesman. I think in years to come, we may look back at this Notley moment at how significant it was in the leadership that she took but she still lost office. So to convince a politician to take some really tough decisions and say, don't worry, in 15 years, everybody's going to love you for it, but you're going to lose the next election badly, 
I'm not sure how many would take that bargain. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to think of it from the incentive of a politician. Usually, exactly. uh, there's that short-termism a little bit of, I need to get elected in four years, not, will this actually create an impact in 15? And I'm glad you mentioned what decision makers might be able to take away from this. So this project is a part of the Positive Energy Initiative examining polarization and trying to get at heart of what works and what we can do to, to address deep polarization and in formulating a climate and energy Yeah, policy. here I'd like to jump in. On, on the polarization part, though, while there is a clear policy legacy, polarization is much higher today than it was in 2015 when Notley introduced it. So not only did she not reduce polarization, she in fact inflamed political polarization over this. So despite the fact there's a policy legacy, the rhetoric has been very divisive, it remains divisive. The interview subjects say there's no way you could have these quiet dinners between energy CEOs, environmental leaders again. You couldn't have a panel looking like the Leach panel did, that the degree of polarization in Alberta and in Canada, and I think the 2019 election results show that, is much higher than it was in 2015, even if there is a policy legacy. Mm -hmm. What can decision makers, both in Alberta as well as at the federal level, take away from the CLP knowing that such a panel probably couldn't exist in today's day and age? Yeah, and I'm not quite clear what the what the lessons are for that, mm-hmm. but just to recognize that these are some of the dangers. And uh, I would say some of Kenny's rhetoric, which is even more inflamed than what Notley's rhetoric was. So the creation of a war room to protect oil and gas reputation, the investigation and the foreign funding of, of environmental groups, his dismissal of businesses that dare criticize Alberta's oil and gas, whether that's HSBC or whether it's Moody's, I think is is dangerous. And so the, the political situation that we're dealing with, the rhetorical stuff that we're dealing with, has really gotten out of hand. And so I, I think it's just awareness of, of some of the dangers uh, that can occur as opposed to suggestions on how to prevent it. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, Dwayne, I'm all out of questions on my end, but are there any additional comments or thoughts that you would like to add regarding the the climate leadership plan and uh, its legacy? No, I, I just think there's a, there's a lot to be learned from it um, in how it was created, how it was defeated, the linkage between provincial politics and federal politics, its policy legacy, which I think is positive, and its legacy on political polarization, which is extremely negative. I think it's it's a multifaceted study, uh, which I think will, will benefit scholars in other areas. Dwayne, thanks so much for your time, and congratulations on crafting such a, a wonderful piece of understanding our recent climate and energy history here in Canada. Well, thanks, Ian. You've been listening to the Positive Energy Podcast. Today's episode was produced by myself, Ian T.D. Thompson.